All right. Well, we are live and Aaron will be right back, but we're live with Susanna Alexander and Aaron Kinspotter. Aaron, we've had a couple of really great conversations in the past. Thank you for being here again to talk with me again about this well, really important issue. Thank you. And I, I'm just meeting Susanna for the first time, but it's a delight to meet you and have you here. And Susanna, you are a former or recent graduate student in a clinical mental health counseling program and had some had some things happen in that program that, that you're going to share. And I'm really glad to be able to have this dialogue with both of you. So thank you so much. Susanna, do you want to give a little bit more of your background perhaps for, uh, for people who are watching? Yeah. Um, are you talking about the background at the program? Oh yeah. The background at the program and maybe what led you to, how did you come to be going back to graduate school? What was your interest in counseling and how did you choose the program that you were in? Well, I came back to counseling because I had just gone through a divorce from a bad marriage. Um, and I felt like, I mean, first of all, I needed to make some money to support my family because um, I have four kids and they're all still living with me now as they go on to their higher education. Um, and I felt like if I was to be able to go into counseling, I could make some of the things that I experienced and, you know, that were bad about my experience in my marriage, um, you know, could be beneficial to somebody else. Um, and it would make, it would make meaning out of the difficulty that I had had in that area. And that's what attracted me to that. I mean, you know, that, and the fact that I, um, you know, had to do extensive work on myself, just, kind of to go through that, um, you know, and I had had, um, I guess, a number of other experiences in my family growing up that kind of led into all of that, um, which had given me a lifelong interest in psychology. Um, I had been interested in it when I was much younger um, and more impressionable. And I listened to my parents, you know, when they said, you know, oh, don't go into that. You won't make any money. Um, a big mistake there. You know, I wish I had gone in it then, you know, then I wouldn't, mm. wouldn't be going back to grad school now, but. Um... <laughs> it sounds like you were drawn to the profession for uh, the reasons a lot of people are. And that's that life experiences have shown you the value of that kind of connection that you can find with another person who really wants to hear you and understand you and help you understand yourself. And you were an older student like myself coming back. Mm -hmm. So um, how did you find the program when you started? Was it, were there red flags right away or, or did you find it to be the experience that you were expecting? And what, what were you expecting? Well, I guess I was expecting, I was expecting it to be a little more, um, I guess, politically left of center, um, just because that seems to be, uh, you know, what I've observed um, of the profession, you know, as a generality, not all therapists are like that. Um, but I had looked around and I had looked around at a number of different online schools, um, but I really wanted to be at a physical school. I thought that that would be helpful. You know, I am in the area, you know, it's local, you know, UT is within driving distance of where I live. Um, and one of my other 
kids was going there at the same time. And, you know, it was kind of like, well, we'll just be going together. Um, and that seemed like that would be a positive experience. Um, and I also felt like going to school in the community where I would then be working would make the most sense. I mean, you know, if I was living somewhere that had been far away from a university, I would have looked probably uh, a lot more seriously with the online schools. But given that I was so close, it just made sense to go where I'm going to end up being working because then, you know, you can make the connections with the people. And I thought that that would ease me back into the work world because I, you know, as a stay at home parent, you know, I have been out of the workforce for quite a long time and making that adjustment all by itself is its own challenge. And I thought that, I thought that that would make all of that easier. Um, and, you know, there were some, in terms of the politicization of the thing there were some red flags early on looking back on it um and what i didn't realize at the time was just how deeply entrenched the ideas were um you know how far down they had gone uh in that rabbit hole um i had had a, a prior experience before i had moved to tennessee i was in a, a unitarian church um, that was in the grips of what I think of as maybe like an early stage of this. It was the congregation was tearing itself apart. Mm -hmm. um, they had reached a they had reached a point after um, gay marriage had become legalized. They did not know what they stood for anymore, yeah. um, and so they were really fracturing along similar lines that I see happening in the uh, UT program and. You know, I had navigated that successfully for a while, and I thought, well, you know, I'm going, it's going to be a two-year program. It's really pretty fast. You know, I'm not going to get politically involved, or at least I didn't think I was, um, and I just did not realize that, you know, the minutia of my own behavior that would be seen as a huge red flag for them. You know, I'm, you know, having come from uh, a situation where there was some, you know, emotional abuse. Um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really receptive to the idea that I need to carry somebody else's shame. I mean, that's just, it's just not healthy. Um, and that was part of the expectation. Um, and, you know, had I recognized that that's how far they were going to take it, um, you know, yeah, I would not have been interested at all. Talk about a left-handed gift from the gods, Susanna, that your own difficult experiences inoculated you against this, just this poisonous uh, ideology. So yeah. it sounds it, like there was, so this was your first semester and, and these things mm -hmm. were coming up right away. And mm -hmm. you were getting the message that you were supposed to feel ashamed, or you said carry somebody else's shame. So how was this in every class? Or did you have like, in my experience, it was, there was an element of it in all my classes, but there was one class that was really like the heavy hitter, the, the DEI training course disguised as a psychology curriculum. It was definitely in all of my classes in, in terms of 
the training, uh, I think where it came out most was in my ethics class, um, because that's where we were talking about the intersectionality um, and you know, a lot of these other issues. Did you, did you cover mean, irony and ethics? <laughs> <laughs> we should have. We should have. <laughs> um, yeah, the the irony is just, it, it's really pretty potent in that particular regard. Um, but I ended up having the most difficulty in groups class because that's where those ideas in the group setting um, really kind of came out. Um, because when you when you put people together and you have you know told them hey th these are microaggressions you need to look out for these and then you characterize a certain kind of person who is supposed to be responsible for all of those problems you know that is you're you're looking for trouble right there you know that's a really combustible mix and that's what happened um, and that was that was pretty ugly. Um, you know, I, you know, groups being, uh, you know, supposed to be a uh, confidential space. I don't want to talk about the details, um, but I will say that those dynamics are bad. They're really bad. So there was and it definitely know, came out. The, mm -hmm. I, I, I do think that the group classes have uh, uh, become one of the tools that ideological predators use to indoctrinate the vulnerable and because they understand that uh the group can uh can be much more effective at pressing extreme ideologies onto people than they as individuals can and so they do even the classes that aren't group oriented per se that are not about group therapy per se will often be um introduced as kind of a group it's it's almost like if you were going into say intersectionality class it's not taught as a seminar it's taught as a you know some kind of quasi therapy group class and and of course that it, there are very subtle mechanisms to get people to understand what what the what the laws of belief are within that group and that those laws of belief, those boundaries of belief must be enforced and that those who are part of the group will be subjected to continuous pressure from the other group members. And yet off in the, in the distance is this, is this escape from this pressure. It's a little door that might be labeled ideological compliance. And if you go through there, and if you agree with them, and if you confess, then all of a sudden you were bought within the warm embrace of the group. I mean, it's it's essentially negative reinforcement. You know, we're gonna we're going to make the the situation intolerable for you until you comply. You know, really something gross. that's really interesting about this that that pressure you're describing. It's so interesting how much of that comes from the students, and it's it. I, I, in my experience, it was like being like, you're looking around wondering, how did I get here where everybody it's coming from the teacher and it's coming from the students and they all believe this thing. 
why did they all believe this thing? Am I crazy? You know, and it's this really weird experience. And Christine Stephen has talked about that experience of being a teacher and having the students pressure her to spout the ideology and push I'm, back I'm, against uh, her. I, I, I definitely, I'm not surprised to hear her say that. And I do think that students are a significant source of pressure. My, my question is, how did that happen? You know, if if the students had been introduced um, to the materials of the program in a way that was about, say, diversity of thought or, you know, uh, a truth as a pathway to benevolence in addressing these intractable issues, might there be a different kind of pressure or... Do, do the students get the idea of what is what are the acceptable parameters and and then you know the couple who adhere to that begin to get status and then in order to achieve status other people start to buy into those few and all of a sudden it turns into this thing where everybody is afraid not to comply and I I, I really don't know if that comes more from the students or more from the faculty, but I, I do think that the faculty encourage it. They don't do anything to stop that process, which is um, dereliction of duty, frankly. What's the Absolutely. psychological process for that? What is the, is it, is it that the school gives cues that this is the way we want, this is the, this is the orientation that we have or the, the ideology that we want to uphold and then the students hear those cues and then act as enforcers and get some kind of some kind of social um reward for for acting in that enforcement role i well i i i definitely know that's true but i don't know if it's a causal relationship one of the things that i really dislike is the fact that oftentimes in students what happens to students coming into counseling programs is from day one of the orientation and often during the interview process itself that they are taught i i mean and they're not even subtle about this that uh even if you you know that it goes something like this even if you think that you are you know a really good person and you think that you're not racist or prejudiced at all you are being extremely harmful and and again like the way out of thinking of yourself as an extremely harmful person, there's this door labeled ideological compliance that people can go through. And so the people who become the nodding heads are the ones that the professor is going to gravitate towards. And then I also think that the professors put extra negative pressure on people who do not comply. Um, and it, it might be in very subtle ways, but but the degree of manipulation is just I just don't know how anyone with any reasonable moral outlook can engage in that kind of behavior. But it's blatant. It's not even disguised, and nobody says anything about it. It's just there's just sort of you know nodding heads, and no one says, um, hey. Uh, wait a minute really <laughs> you know <laughs> how, how do you know that and <laughs> you know 
I, I don't know where 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 are all the people who are so very harmed and mm -hmm. you know hospitalized and and everything else before your ideas came where is that population that you know was suffering horribly until in 2010 you told us about microaggressions uh can somebody answer that for me and uh so far no one seems to have an answer but they get really angry when i ask that question well, I, I think that it was in my program, you know, it was me when I did push back against a number of those trainings uh, directly in front of the class that, um, you know, got me flagged as problematic. Um, and then it was the faculty that, you know, enforced pushing me out. Um, you know, as I, I mean, going into it, I don't know if you had this experience, Leslie, but I was the the only older student in my cohort. Um, and they very much designed the program so that people would come together as a tight knit group in the cohort. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, I was 20 years older than the closest person. So, you know, it was always going to be, uh, you know, a, a hard road to you know, make that kind of a connection, which looking back on it, I think is maybe not, not a good goal. That's not the goal that the program should have. Um, but there were a number of instances where, you know, we had things, uh, you know, where, you know, they asked the class, you know, well, what do you think about this? And what do you think about this? Uh, one of the things that uh, UT did a lot was they had uh, what they call their chorus values, um, and those were things that they wanted to impart to the student. So, and the chorus stands for. Oh, let, let me let me like, let me like, guess, Susanna. It was they okay. wanted to make outstanding therapists. That was their. Oh that yeah. Was their value mm -hmm. and and you know they wanted to make sure that their therapists were well read, and ready to engage with a pluralistic population who might hold values different than theirs is it, but that mm -hmm. must have been the extent of it right you know it was it was only about producing excellent therapists who engage could engage with people from whom they differ right oh well yeah, super <laughs> yeah oh well sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah they they had their their whole set of trainings though and their values were like they had just added humility as one and what i learned is what they meant by humility <laughs> is not what i would mean by humility what they meant by humility is shut up and do what we tell you to do um but yeah yeah openness we were supposed to be open and self-aware by self-aware what that meant was you know if you're white you should be self-aware that you know you're privileged and bad and all of that um yeah it was absurd it was absurd. And, you know, when I talked about, we had sp specific trainings that we had to come in for these values. Um, and I remember one in particular where they were wanting to say that if you had had an experience with somebody in the past, a racist experience, and, and you had harmed somebody, that you should not go talk to them about that kind of a thing um and you know like go back and apologize well you know having lived a half a century 
you know, I've already lived some of this stuff. And so I said, well, you know, uh, I grew up back in the 1970s, you know, and I've talked to some of my, I, I grew up uh, right by Fort Bragg, um, which I guess is now, now Fort Liberty. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a very mixed neighborhood and, you know, it was the 1970s and we did stupid stuff. And, you know, as I grew and mature, matured you know i've gone back and talked to a number of my classmates and you know said oh you know sorry about that um and it turned out to be a very positive experience and what they were trying to present in the program is that you should not have those conversations because as a white person you're imposing on the other person that you know like you're going to them needing forgiveness rather than you know let's just kind of connect as human beings and acknowledge yeah, that was, we were dumb when we were younger what what would it what would happen if instead of um breaking ourselves into tribes um we 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 adopted a stance where um please engage each other as humans wouldn't that be a a, a a, a very interesting way to sort of tilt that onto its head but oh yeah let's mm -hmm. you know all we white people are humans so let's 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 engage people as humans first and then you know maybe at some point if we have well I can't even imagine under what circumstances it would be good to become tribal but you know why not why not connect through our humanity why mm -hmm. why not do that well, another thing that 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 instruction not to go back and apologize to someone if you've if you've if you recognize that you did something that made them feel bad or hurt them in the past and you've you've come to think differently about it and you feel sorry for it, don't go back and apologize to them. That's a very counterintuitive instruction, which I think also undermines your sense of reality and your your ability to trust yourself. It seems I like a I'll deliberate deliberate effort to confuse people and make them not trust their own intuition well it's it's also a hell of an overreach i mean it's none of your damn business who i feel like i should apologize for why don't you okay i'm really trying not to like like four letter words seem to be the only appropriate response but i, I feel uh, that i feel that you know why don't you go why don't you go somewhere <laughs> in in telling me who I would apologize for and under what circumstances I would do that, I think an apology is probably one of the most personal things yeah. that someone could work out for themselves. And no professor anywhere has any business whatsoever intruding into that personal space. And people who think they do uh, are in desperate need of some uh, some deep work themselves. Yeah. I want to read something from the chat here because it, it calls back to what you were saying about your group cl class. It's uh, Tiffany Depied. Sorry if, if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, Tiffany. says the group dynamics class, Tiffany was also in a program. She's sharing about this. Mm. was awful. My group turned on me and demanded I acknowledge myself as oppressive. I got no support from professors. And it just oh, sounds Tiffany. like a complete Tiffany, nightmare. sounds awful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, Is that I, similar to your experience, Susanna? Very similar, very mm -hmm. similar. And, uh, you know, following our student handbook, what I did in that situation, you know, we were supposed to talk with professors. If we were having difficulties with another student and couldn't work it out amongst ourselves, we were supposed to talk to one of our professors. And I talked to two mm -hmm. um, and got no support 
Um, and I ended up on a student support plan, which I asked for, which they had first threatened to put me on one um, like a couple of weeks prior um, because my thinking was too concrete and I was told that I was transphobic. Um, I never got based on what evidence, um, you know, but uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, when I was in that student support uh, meetings, you know, the first thing that they asked me to do was to write an apology for what had happened at group and to basically take responsibility for the entire situation. What, what were you supposed to be to sorry group? for? What, yeah, what yeah. exactly are, are they referring to there? Well, you know, I know to, it's hard to talk about it without getting specific. And you're oh, yeah, if I'm being right, too right. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's hard to, um, you know, but I guess riffing off of what uh, the questioner brought up, it was a very similar situation and they wanted me to take responsibility for it in its entirety. You know, I was being held responsible uh, for things that in my opinion, I did not have a responsibility for. Um, you know, I cannot, I cannot take responsibility for something that I, I didn't do, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I learned later on and, you know, I, I assume from the fact that one of my professors in the student support thing mentioned it to me that it's no longer confidential. Um, but they told me that my group leader had 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 taken issue with a story that I had told from my growing up. I uh, went to school in Greensboro and I happened to be there before the old Woolworth was closed down, the one where they had the sit-ins. Um, and I, I went and I visited there because it was within walking distance of the university. It was like the only um, uh, store that was of that type. And it was cheap. Um, you know, as a young student, <laughs> I needed that. Um, and uh, my uh, group leader had taken issue with that, but didn't bring it up in the context of that. And like, I don't, I don't understand what the issue was, um, but that was presented to me as further evidence that I was um, culturally insensitive, um, you know, basically a bigot um, because I, I didn't know what the issue was. What was upsetting about that to someone? Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I That's really confusing. It, it it was very confusing. The when, whole thing was very confusing. I'm curious about when you started this program, when did you first start to have these conflicts? Was it right away or was it kind of gradually? Did it happen all at once? And were you being called out? Because it sounds like you were being called out, not you calling out the, mm -hmm. the teaching. It wasn't you so much raising questions. It was you. They were finding fault with you. Is that, yeah. is that how it went? Yeah. Um, and I think it was, well, I thought things were going pretty well and it wasn't until, you know, a lot of reflection afterwards, because I found the whole situation is just incredibly disorienting and confusing. Yeah. Um, but it was about six weeks in where I was called in to my advisor's office 
And that's when I was informed that my thinking was too concrete. Um, and that, uh, yeah, and that I need to fix that. And, you know, that I was also transphobic. Um, and, you know, this was also after we had had those, um, those classes on, uh, you know, those values that they wanted, those course values that they wanted us to, you know, absorb. Um, but I had, I had been calling out different parts of the curriculum as things went on. So like I, I gave my experience that was directly counter to what they were presenting when they said, you know, that we should not be going back to apologize. I said, oh, well, you know, I've done that already and, and it actually worked out great. And, you know, we were a lot closer afterward um, and, you know, they they didn't like that. Um I had complained about um, in one of my papers about the chorus teaching um, because from my point of view, you know, at, at, at a half century, I'm not, I'm not a 20 year old who doesn't really know myself anymore. I've got a pretty good idea about what I stand for and what's important to me. And I felt like if they didn't think that I already valued those values, they probably shouldn't have brought me into the program, you know, because man, if you're if you're over 50 and you know, you don't already value um being self-reflective and uh you know value openness, you're probably not gonna get it at that point. And so I had complained in a couple of my papers saying that, you know, this is kind of invalidating, you know, I'm not sure what you're wanting from me here. Um, you know, at, at my age. Um, and there were other incidents where material was being presented, you know, they, they bring up these values quite a lot during the lectures. Um, and there, there was at, you know, at one point, I, I pointed out that what they were doing, you know, how they were presenting them is like, this was not an achievement goal you know they were saying you know you need to work at this and you need to pay attention to it all the time and and I just said in front of the class you know this this is not an achievable goal what you're asking well, us to do what here if, what if it's wrong you know had, had they yeah. ever <laughs> considered the possibility that uh there are other approaches a common humanity approach rather than a hyper racialized approach to these sort of conflicts uh, have they looked at the work of someone like Daryl Davis, you know, who who approaches this from a common humanity uh, 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 approach? And and might they, uh, the the faculty at the University of Tennessee, who apparently really need to take a close look at themselves, uh, and, and asked, uh, are we uh, enacting uh, the you know the virtues that we would like our students? to adopt? Uh, are we open? Are we intellectually, uh, uh, do we have intellectual humility? Um, it, and it, it's, it seems to me that that there uh, is, is some evidence here that they would fail abysmally at the virtues that they, that they are wanting to espouse. And uh, maybe the faculty at the of, of counseling at the uh, University of Tennessee should take a close look at that. Maybe they could hire. Uh, I would consultant. say absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I would say absolutely. Horribly. Yeah. Um, 
You know what really, really, really gives me the willies, uh, Susanna, mm. is that is what those students who hopped on board with sort of the mobbing in this class, what they took away from that class, because all of these classes, and this seems to have been forgotten, and I don't know why KREP and the ACA can't get their act together and take a look at this. In educational experiences like that, it, it is practice for how you do group therapy in the real world. Now, suppose that there is someone like Susanna here, mature, experienced, has had some very difficult experiences in her life that have made her wary of uh, uh, taking on the task of perhaps carrying someone else's guilt. And suppose that that person who, you know, maybe is like Susanna, comes to one of the graduates of the University of Tennessee counseling program, a group, a group therapy that they are running, and imagine what happens to that incredibly vulnerable person who is not on board with this. Mm -hmm. is, uh, is the faculty at the counseling program at the University of Tennessee happy with how they are portraying a good and healthy therapy experience? Are they expecting that their students, when they're conducting therapy groups, are going to allow and encourage a kind of mobbing and a demanding of apology? And I, I just, I can't, I can't imagine that they have thought through that they have reached the end of that thought process. They seem to have been blocked by a kind of, by a, in the midst of a momentary moralistic spasm, mm -hmm. uh, adolescent moralistic spasm, where they're not looking to where their procedures and ideas are likely to lead. They're only aware of wanting to enforce uh the ideas that are within their program that is incredibly irresponsible this is something like what i was thinking i think you articulated it better but i was thinking when i did uh i took a group class in my counseling program and it was very good it was one of the better classes that i had in my program and there was this I guess it was it was sort of a group within a group because it's kind of a meta group situation where you've got the group and then there's the teacher who's outside of the group sort of helping to kind of hold and facilitate and create the structure that the group is is in. So we had we had, we had two groups throughout the semester. There was the one who was active and the one that was uh, observing and they just switched off and took turns. And then the teacher sort of held held the whole thing together. And so for it to get that out of hand where somebody is being singled out and the teacher not to step in and, and perform right. the facilitator role of helping yeah. to integrate this process for everybody so that it, it provides a therapeutic experience and an educational experience for everybody, it seems horribly irresponsible and unethical. Right. Sure it does. And it's like where mm -hmm. in any group therapy book is it, you know, okay to mob is it, someone? is it covered that it's <laughs> okay to allow the the, the group uh, to ensure that one of the members complies you know bullies another member 
uh, to the point where you know they they complied I, like that's madness i mean that's a that's a struggle session you know do, yes are we mm -hmm. do you want to make people into red shirts is that you know you want to you want to base the group class on maoism is that the idea just i i do not understand how these um these practices escape the realm of reasonable reflection like oh is that going well what is going on with these people that they don't see this is a problem oh my god well and yeah. something else tiffany when you or, or i'm sorry i'm talking to tiffany i see tiffany in the chat mm -hmm. i was going to read her other comment that she said she said that the uh, she went to the program office for support and was in tears while the group followed yelling at her it sounds like an absolute oh nightmare god. But um, Susanna, you mentioned, and I'm sorry, Tiffany, I didn't mean to say that so offhandedly. I was reading your comment at the same time as thinking about this other stuff. But you mentioned that you were significantly older than all the other students. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the case in the program that I was in. There were some younger people. I'd say the average was probably, the average age was probably in their 30s. But there were plenty of people that were older. I was in my early 40s and there were there were people who were in their 60s there were just it was a, a wide range of people but one of the things and, and I don't know if this is beside the point and and it's just kind of an observation but I'm thinking if, if the average student or you said you were 20 years older than the next youngest per, or next oldest person and so that's a mm -hmm. really young cohort and yeah. th these are people that don't have a lot of life experience under their belt and they're being educated and filled with this perspective and then they're being mm -hmm. armed to go out into the community and yeah and work mm -hmm. as as the you know a, a reference point for what it means to be a psychologically healthy person mm -hmm. which is just I, I'm just that I don't have a, a real I don't know what my question is but I'm just observing that and that's kind of giving me it's making me feel uncomfortable thinking about that. Yeah, th this is why I feel like um, this is teaching malpractice. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't see how you can come out from this program and have I mean, and this is not to throw my former classmates under the bus. I think a lot of them are really well-meaning um, and will eventually make great therapists. Um, I do think that they will have obstacles to overcome based on this training. Um, I think that this training is in and of itself malpractice. I mean, you know, my experience of it was really awful. And I um, I hear what Tiffany is saying. I had a similar experience where I also broke down um, in the context of that group situation and was just, you know, I couldn't stop crying. And that's when I, uh, you know, went in and asked for the support plan, which I thought was going to be. You thought it was going to be supported. Mm, she's frozen up right now. Um, and it, it was a very, very, uh, you know, I don't, you know, I, yeah, I, I don't understand how the faculty can, you know, I don't know what stories they're telling themselves to make it okay, their approach on this. Um, I, I just, I, you know, it, it, it was a very, um, it was 
it was a very re-traumatizing experience for me in terms of that, which is why it has, you know, kind of taken me a while to get to where I can even verbalize some of what happened in a way that made sense because so much of it just doesn't make sense. You know, like, why would they do that? I don't know. You know, it just, you know, I just, I, I feel like they were so captured inside of this ideology and and maybe a part of it is that in Tennessee, Tennessee had just been, uh, that year had been given a rating as the the least welcoming for LGBTQ issues. And perhaps they felt like that made them even more under threat and heightened their own anxiety that we are being pursued, even though, you know, we're still having, you know, pride events, you know, all of these other things. I mean, heck, I've even marched in the Knoxville Pride Parade. Um, but I think that they they took those things and internalized them in a way that increased their anxiety to the point that cruelty was okay. I think that's what happened. Because um, it was definitely cruel. It was absolutely cruel. I think I'm about to have a, a feline issue here that I'm going to have to uh, quickly rectify while I let her out. <laughs> Pardon me, everybody. You know, it's a, one of the things that that is striking to me is that there's this, these are people who are telling you about ways to behave and set boundaries around your behavior and your expectations of other people and trying to teach you healthy ways of communicating and and then they act in ways that are con are are you know contrary to that like directly contradictory and it's mm -hmm. it's if this situation this social justice backdrop the institutional um oppression or whatever they want to call it gives them license to suspend the the normal healthy communication and behavior and they don't even recognize that they're making that exception like they refuse mm -hmm. to acknowledge that they're making that exception but that exception is plain like if you have a big enough emotional problem with something go ahead and suspend all of your normal ethical moral behavior and and, and I just I don't it's been perplexing to me how psychology professionals and educators can act this way right. and and be blind to it I don't understand you know, that I, I have to say I, I I am not myself an expert in international affairs by any means but I can't help have uh, have noticed um the dehumanization involved uh in what's going on on universities around the Palestine-Israel conflict, where uh, you know it it appears uh, there's this narrative out there that somehow what happened on um, October seventh should be excused or understood as having been um, I don't know somehow a justified response to past wrongs, and I I was amazed at the extent um of the dehumanization narrative towards uh israel that i've been seeing across the united states now i i would imagine that one could have a reasonable discussion about the conflict 
between uh, Palestine and, and Israel and and that that could be fleshed out. But to have the events of October 7th somehow reframed as as uh, being at you know something that should be laid at the feet of Israel just is beyond me. But it it really I, I keep thinking I've gotten to the point where I can't be shocked anymore. And then, but just watching what's going on on campuses with the ability of, you know, bright, privileged, um, young people just, just uh, 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 losing their ability to, uh, uh, to, to think of other people as human beings is, it, it astounds me. It really astounds me. And I, to, I'm I'm still trying to figure this out myself, but it it has made me think that perhaps the the woke phenomenon within the profession is much worse than I had conceptualized. It's it sometimes uh, I'm wondering if if even I, who have you know, was in forced proximity to some of this, uh, really understand the extent of the crazy here, and. It's it's that is so I too Susanna and Leslie wonder um, what are these people thinking? How can they possibly think that they're doing right by the students and in particular right by the students' eventual clients? Some of whom, through their narrow and effed up ideology, would be considered oppressors. How are they preparing their students to work with people that the students have been trained to think of as as oppressors? Have you seen the recent issues of counseling today? No, I'm happy to say I missed those. <laughs> I, I think I'm about to be further horrified, though. Well, uh, I, uh, you know, one of the things that we had to do um, is become members of the ACA, the American Counseling Association, for anybody else out there who um, doesn't recognize that. Um, but we were required to join the ACA for our insurance, but we were also encouraged to read all of their materials mm -hmm. um, and that sort of thing. And so their magazine, Counseling Today, is one of the things that has been coming to my house. And I think I've just now finished up my uh, subscription. But in in the videos that I made about my experience, um, I call out some of the things that they have recently been printing in there. So like in the October issue, the president of the ACA is talking about decolonizing the profession. Um, and they are making calls to, I, I mean, like, you know, what else are we going to call that? But, you know, we're going to racistly get out the white people. And in the September issue, there is is uh you know which i happen to have right over here by me um there is an article about navigating white privilege in the counseling room and one of the quotes that they pull out you know talks about how you avoid perpetuating toxic whiteness in counseling spaces and like when we talk that? about how things, do you do that what's well, their advice well, well, what their advice is, is that you should be thinking about your whiteness all the time. And, and this is it, from and it October? Was, yeah, this is from, oh yeah, this is from October. Okay. This is the 
if, if my camera will pick it up here. Yeah. So this this article, which is on the website right now, you can go and see it uh -huh. even if you don't have the uh, subscription anymore. But I highly recommend, you know, taking a minute and checking it out. Also, this um, this is the um, one where they talk about decolonizing the profession. That is also on the Counseling Today website, and you can read it without a subscription. Um, but yeah, what they're saying is that counselors should be thinking about their whiteness and their white privilege, not just in the counseling room, but all of the time, so that they are always decentering themselves. I mean, and like from where I'm coming from, you know, if you're constantly decentering yourself, that really sounds like you're in the midst of a narcissistic relationship. You know, yeah, I, I you know, would we're, reframe we're, that as navel gazing. You know that, yeah. it, like I, I, I would be shocked if people who actually do this hear one third of what their patients are actually saying to them. Because since since start since becoming a full time therapist, I can tell you that none of this stuff is relevant. I do occasionally encounter people who are victims of racism, sexism, transphobia. I mean, that stuff is real. And it can be addressed without any of this DEI stuff. And I would never uh, navel gaze, take my attention off of my patients and put it on myself in, in the concept, in the context of the therapy session. They're not paying me to navel gaze. Mm -hmm. They're paying me to bring my knowledge to bear to assist them in in navigating these intractable difficulties that, that they're having in their lives. And what counseling today is pushing is utterly, completely, in all other ways, irrelevant to the actual act of helping. It's a waste of paper and ink to put it out there. It literally serves no purpose other than kind of a moral masturbatory one. Well, and I think the, it's worse. It's worse than just irrelevant. It's it is as Susanna said, malpractice. Because yeah. not only are you not helping, not only are you not training people who are able to, as you say, really listen to their their clients or patients, and understand them and and help them, but they're they're creating new problems for these people. They're, they're, they're helping these people to create new neuroses. Oh my gosh! I have a yard elf coming mm -hmm. into the picture here. Mm -hmm. Uh, no, Hello, that is my elf. wife going out to thousands of people <laughs> who are watching. Um, um, uh, yeah, it 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 is. It's it. They are. They are. They are uh, preaching uh, malpractice. They're preaching navel gazing, and none of it is needed or required. I would say the one good thing is that I think the market. Um, the free market of therapy is beginning to take effect. Uh, in the last few months, I, I've had no fewer than, I don't know, four or five new patients come in and say uh, that, that, you know, here I have this really difficult problem that I'm trying to navigate with my patients or with with my family or or with my, you know, whatever. And and they're running into these counselors who are saying things like, 
well, I'm just really glad that you were able to find your voice. Like some nonsensical, mm -hmm. vacuous kind of nonsense that is is what passes for sophistication in counselor training these days. And the these these people are leaving the therapists who are preaching that kind of nonsense and they're looking for people who actually can help them out with some of these issues. And I think that's really good for people who are in private practice and and clients who can both afford and and have the option of seeing a private practice counselor or coach but the thing that really concerns me is so many these schools are funneling people into yeah. community mental health and education yeah. settings so they're they're putting people in they're really focusing on school counselors and there's an increase in the number of school counselors as a response to the lockdowns and what that did to students and so they're really pushing for more counselors in schools and the counselors who are going into schools are are these young people that are charged up to become activists. Yeah. And so it just sort of creates this this cycle of of indoctrination. And that's what really concerns me. It's not so much the private and, and, practice. And it is going to mobile it, people. It's, it's a really good point Leslie that this is going to come down on the people who are most vulnerable to it. Like the people who have to go to community mental health centers. And, you know, people who probably have the least amount of voice, mm -hmm. you know, they haven't been trained to advocate for themselves, perhaps, mm -hmm. or, or maybe they're, they're, they have mental illnesses that make it difficult for them to think and express themselves clearly. And they're just going to kind of be subjected to this stuff. Right. And think of how seductive that is, too, when you get an ideology that says none of this is your fault. It's institutional. You were a victim. And, you know, really, are these people are in people who have had are hitting rock bottom to the point where they're in a community mental health setting and that setting. And I don't want to say that that's necessarily rock bottom for everybody, but it's really a tough place to be. It is. Yeah. And to be fed this ideology that either you're you're an oppressor or you're, you've been oppressed by everything. Mm -hmm. It's not a resilience strategy. It's not a resilience building ideology at all. It's a resentment building ideology. And so not I'm only starting... those people, but also the kids who are subject right. to counseling in schools who are That's I've heard some captive. really disturbing things about that. Someone was telling me that there was a, uh, there was a school counselor who was coming in to do a, um, like a, a class learning with, I think there were like, sixth graders or something mm -hmm. and the and there was a there was a parent there who was who was watching this and the parent uh, was a psychotherapist and so caught on to what was going on and what happened was that um the school counselor sort of identified who the cool kid in the class was and then you know sort of focused a lot of attention on them and this this particular training was about gender identity, which I, you know, um, I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole here, but I, I've been I've been trying to think about, you know, what would be a way to maybe raise some of these issues by but circumvent the process of indoctrination and be very aware and careful of you know, the a social contagion effect. 
you know, this counselor, this school counselor here in Vermont, uh, used that social contagion effect because she focused on the cool kid in the class. And then by the end of the class, both this kid and her six friends were identifying as they, them. Oh my gosh. Now, you, I mm. mean, and you could look at that and say, oh, well, so what? But one of the things that is happening right now, there's there's two things that are really concerning about this. One is you can't tell who is going, who who transitions is is going to subsequent subsequently detransition. That's one. Like no one can say that right now. The other is that there's a social uh, within this social contagion of gender ideology, there is pressure on children to you know if if starting to socially transition is good moving on to medical transition is great and there you know it's it's like how authentic it's a game of how authentic can you be and you you combine that with a lot of parents who are being blatantly misinformed or or or, or being told that they're terrible if they don't go along with these ideas it's a really dangerous kind of situation that's that's one thing that like I heard that and I thought oh my god that's so awful and yet like that was another time where I'm like I, I keep thinking I can't be surprised and I keep being surprised but another thing that's going on right now is they're having uh they're having the older students you know like the I I, I don't know how they're broken up now but but you have the older class of students coming down and talking to the younger class of students so you have the mm -hmm. fifth graders coming down and talking to the second graders about mm. social justice issues oh my god it's, it's mm. sort of it's another version Ooh. of like oh it's like the greta thunberg cool effect, effect trying the, to get yeah, the, kids to, yeah the fifth graders are being used because they can't possibly understand what it is that they're uh pushing and you know of course the the second and third graders can't process this they just know that the cool kids who they want to be like are telling them that all of these things are a good idea. You know, that's such a clever way to do this. If you wanted to yeah. spread this ideology, because oh, one of yeah. the things I've thought is that kids have this, you know, there's this natural um, individuation rebellion process as we become yeah. teenagers and that teenagers are going to get sick of the teachers and the right. adults telling them, feeding them their rebellion, the way that they've been right. doing, you know, it's going to look like this is going to be the next thing that gets, that they're going to they're going to grow tired of this but if you use right. kids in order to per yeah. pass this on to kids then you kind of right. you can keep it going a little bit longer oh yeah i mean and i can i can remember well in high school like the you know the difference between the ninth and the 12th graders and mm -hmm. you try and like go over to the 12th graders table and like sneak in because <laughs> they're the cool kids and they yeah. tell you to go away <laughs> and yeah. so yeah so there there really is this hierarchy and I think you're absolutely right Leslie that children are going to rebel against the obvious authority but if the cool kids telling you to do it I mean it's it's like the peer pressure thing mm -hmm. like, it's it's so it's such a and I just like what is wrong with school counselors that they don't stop and say you know there's something about this that just doesn't quite strike me as right mm -hmm. like what part of them as human beings is missing right now that they don't well, see that that's wrong they're very young for one thing i think many of them are very young i my my nephew is a school counselor and he's i think he's wonderful i'm i'm sure he's 
we've had conversations about this. He's his his thinking on this is more aligned with mine than with the social justice stuff, as far as I can tell. But he's very young. I mean, he got his master's in counseling and was licensed at 23 or 24 years old. And so you think about it's not that you can't be a helpful support at that age. You surely you can. Surely there's a there's a role you know, that you can fill at that age, but it's harder Mm -hmm. because you haven't been through a lot of life at that point. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's a really good point, but you know, you, you raise an interesting question. I'm just wondering, I I think we have about 15 minutes left. I wonder if we should, we should talk a little bit. I don't know, Susanna, you got to say everything you wanted to say, and I'd be interested in that, but I I also like, I think I, I, I would really like us to talk about solutions if we could find some time to do that yeah well that's what i was thinking is i think you know all of these things are where i mean at least with the schools you know parents have got to step in you know they have to take some uh actions in order to counterbalance this you know whether it is you know in homeschooling which i know is a very big ask for a lot of people um you know, that's problematic, but, you know, talking to, you know, being aware of what's going on in their schools, um, being aware of who is their counselor, what their counselors are doing. Um, I think there are so many different areas in which people need to start considering some of these choices, you know, whether it's, you know, just on the front line, like, you know, I've had a number of people who know what's happened to me ask me well it's like well geez you know I need to go see a counselor how do I find one that is not you know captured by this and you know I'm kind of in the position of saying well you know try and find somebody who's older um, and you know have the conversation you know I, I used to have conversations with people who were concerned you know it's like well what if my therapist is really religious you know how do you do that it's like well you know you need to have that conversation immediately just you know walk in and say hey I don't believe this or I don't want this to be part of the therapy um you know and that's still not going to be a perfect measure you know if somebody really deeply believes this ideology you know they're going to find a way to to bring it in you know if it, if it's part of your thinking that white people are privileged or whatever group is privileged and another group is marginalized you know, you're going to find a way to work that in to how you're interacting with the people. And that that is going to be a problem. Um, I, you know, for myself, you know, I have been talking to, you know, my local state representative. Um, I just did that on Tuesday. And, you know, we're looking ahead to the next uh, congressional state congressional cycle. Um, at the beginning of the new year. Um, And, you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen right now, but he has asked me if I'd be willing to testify. And, you know, you know, yes, the answer is yes. Um, I will go on the record um, for what happened to me and how I feel like um, this is harming people. But, you know, I, I think that people need to be aware of what's going on and they need to start speaking up about it. I mean, I think one of the important things or a a number of the important things is we need to call a thing a thing. So like this is malpractice. 
And we need to use those words. You know, it, it, it can't be like, this is bad. We need to say, this is actually malpractice. This is hurting people. Um, you know, it is racist. This, this training is racist. You know, no matter what the, you know, what they're trying to say, that that is what it is. Um, and, and we need to. Well, and I'd like to, I'd like to just speak to something to okay. that real quick. Susanna, because I, I know that there could be people who are going to look at, at this and say, oh, and this happened to me uh, when I made a video about this topic, that people looked at me and said, um, oh, how how can you object to white people, you know, be being, you know, singled out for the race or something? And I just want to point out that, um, you know, or they, you know, they, they, they confuse they confuse concerns about that with white supremacy or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I, I just want to, I just want to point out to anyone who has those kinds of concerns, this, that if, if you connect social ills to persons of a particular race, no matter what that race is, and we've read that story many times before with many different races, you are saying that these difficulties are best racialized and that mm -hmm. is never going to go well for anybody because if it can be racialized for one group it can be racialized for another and what 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 we are implicitly supporting is exactly the same kind of dehumanization that we're seeing uh following uh th that that probably are behind the events of october 7th and that mm -hmm are behind all the awfulness that's going on on college campuses, all those things have been racialized. And we really need to stop uh, conflating race and culture. That, like, and, and we definitely need to stop attributing societal ills to people of a particular race. Uh, and whiteness might be a fashionable version of that same toxic story. Uh, and it's fashionable and it seems okay, but you are still participating in fundamentally the same kind of dehumanizing, awful uh, solutions that have led to the worst tragedies in human history. Like, it is not that hard to do better than that. If, if you just look at people like Daryl Davis you know, I, and with a moment's thought, I could probably name five or six others, Coleman Hughes, John McCorder, uh, Thomas Sowell makes really cogent arguments about this. Uh, uh, you know, just just look at the true humanitarians and follow their lead. It's not hard, but but don't give in to the fashion of 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 uh of looking at a particular race and giving in to the, you know, to the savage joy of pointing at them and and experiencing the high that comes with that kind of awfulness. Well, it seems like people really, really want to find a way to off, to distance themselves from aspects of human nature that they don't want to see in themselves and will go to great lengths to do that and to attribute it to some characteristic of the other yeah and so that seems like that's a process that's playing out in a lot of ways around these intersectional identities I think um so. 
something that I wanted to read from the, the chat. Cowlick Combs says, I think we should be teaching our young people to start speaking to older trusted family members and friends who used to naturally serve as counselors. And this brings up what I think is a really good point. I think we over therapize children. And I think yeah. that parents need to be very careful about who they let be an authority figure to their child. That goes for teachers, mm -hmm. doctors, counselors, et cetera. There's, there's a, a real undermining of the family structure and parental authority that goes yeah. on when we allow people that we don't vet very carefully to have a lot of influence over our children. I, I think that's, that's very wise. And I, I wanted to tack on to what you were talking about with the, I, I don't know if you quite put it in these terms, Leslie, but the, the intersectional rage, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've been thinking about this lately. I've been thinking about this since October 7th. And, and I have noticed this rage uh, that that comes up, you know, around the social justice issues and the viciousness associated with people who are sort of claiming to be, you know, very humanistic and concerned, I guess, about the hurting of people or people who are hurting. And, uh, you know, I'm just looking at that viciousness. And I'm thinking, what what is that viciousness component to this? And I do have a thought about that. Um, and, and one of the things I'll see in my practice from time to time is, like people will come in and they'll have these awful thoughts about people that they're mad at or, you know, whatever. And the, and the way that I learned to talk to people about that, and I think I think this is probably true. It's it's an idea that comes from Freud, but there, there's a there is a significant part of each and every one of us that is vicious, that is self-serving, that is, for want of a better word, evil. Um uh, that that is destructive. And um, I, I think we all have that capacity for sure. And maybe that's just sort of a, maybe we all have that, you know, in just day to day walking around. And that's just how people are. And some of us manage it better than others. But I, I think what the what the social justice rage phenomenon might be, is that I think that a lot of people need to find ways to discharge that that vicious destructive energy in socially acceptable ways because there are so many non-socially acceptable ways to discharge that negative energy that we build up and i i think one of the things that might be going on is that social justice it 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 provides a mechanism that is is viewed as a highly moralistic thing to be doing but that allows for the most vicious things to, to happen towards other people, where you just treat other people in a dehumanizing, awful kind of way, and then can celebrate yourself as a highly moral person for doing that. And so I've been wondering about yeah. uh, that the part of the personality that I'm speaking of is, is called the id, and uh, I, I'm wondering if perhaps what we're seeing right now is uh, a lot of people who are uh, discharging this sort of libidinal destructive energy uh, that that flows from from the id, and but they're doing it in such a way that actually gives them status, hmm. and that wow. would be. Quite, that's really interesting that would be quite a mechanism uh i'd be very interested if any therapists are watching <laughs> what they 
what what they think of that and do they think that holds water or maybe not it's just something i've been thinking to myself that's really uh, interesting and i at the risk of taking us on a tangent i'll say that i i've noticed i've had some observations around this over the past week or so as there's been this whole agp gate if you've been following that the blue dress the man in the dress mm -hmm. discourse um i don't want to take us down that that <laughs> rabbit hole because it'll it'll derail it's, what we're a, it's doing. a long story <laughs> yeah it's a long story but i will say i i think that there are a lot of logical and valid arguments against this this the individual's uh theory or behavior that people could raise but instead of raising valid arguments there's just a lot of offloading of rage there's a lot mm. of and and it seems very irrational in some ways and it's it's been very interesting to watch this stir up in the internet discourse and uh, what you're saying about looking for a, a channel for that, mm -hmm. that destructive sort of antisocial side of ourselves mm -hmm. while also achieving status. And I also think that distancing yourself from the, the behavior or the, the aspect of human nature that you're finding repulsive might yeah. be a part of that it's projecting it outward and pushing it away from the self oh that's so interesting yeah. that's so interesting so i, well, I think it's, I, I wouldn't oh go ahead Suzanne. well i was gonna say i think it's also a way to avoid having to you know address and interact with the fear and uncertainty that you know i feel like is pervasive in our culture right now you know we have the situation uh, going on in the Middle East. And then there's also Ukraine. And we don't know what's going to even happen with our own presidency. Um, you know, for me, I feel that uncertainty, just it feels awfully palpable most of the time. And I think that for a certain segment of people, it is much easier to, you know, latch on to a ideology a moralistic ideology that tells you this is good and that's bad and all i have to do is go yell and be angry at somebody and then you don't ever really have to engage with that uncertainty about your own actions or your status or even what's going to happen you know because you have discharged all of that um in your in your anger in that rage that you were talking about you know, Susanna, as you're talking, I I think that you there's so much understanding of human behavior that that you bring, and it's such a shame that you were, yeah, that you were stymied in your attempt to get to the career that you wanted. What are you? Sure. What is next for you? And are you finding an alternative route to continue pursuing that professional goal? Yeah, I don't know what is next for me. Um, you know, I I had a I had a window in my divorce settlement in order to be able to get the degree, which when they, you know, said that I could not start my practicum, you know, meant that the degree would take an additional year, which, you know, there was just no way that I could afford. And by that point, I had been like pretty thoroughly traumatized and needed to go back and get that straightened out. Um, and while I'm emotionally now in a better place and I feel uh, I've worked on some other skills. I got my undergraduate in English and, and I'm a pretty good writer. Um, I am trying to figure that out. Um, I don't know. Um, I, when I look at the, you know, materials coming out of the ACA, 
you know, the idea of trying to go to another program and get further involved in this career is just like, you know, heck no. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, while I could see the possibility of, you know, being a coach, I'm not quite sure, you know, how to start that process. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I think that I I probably could be good at that. I have done a, a lot of volunteer counseling work um or you know peer support like peer counseling yeah mm-hmm. well yeah it, this is what so, i i think i i've really i keep coming back to this as a real problem right now not just for this profession but for a culture that has come to rely on this profession and that's that there are good people who want to work as supportive counselors coaches etc and the training programs are so compromised that in order to get to in in order to acquire the the education and the training necessary to do a good job in this way you have to run this gauntlet of social justice um what mind effery <laughs> what do you want to call mm-hmm. it it's just i mean it's it really messes with your mind it's psychologically damaging to do this to be put through this and and also there's a difficult, we have a difficulty distinguishing as you were describing, people are asking, how do I find a counselor who's not compromised by this ideology? So there, it's difficult for clients and patients who want to work with a counselor to know who that who they can trust. There's no dividing line. There's no clear demarcation. So I think that we need a parallel profession. And along with a parallel profession, we need parallel education um, opportunities. So we need some kind of, some kind of a whether it's counseling or whether it's coaching or whether whatever it is, something that that gives people the training that they need to work with people in a really supportive and healthy fashion mm-hmm. that's divorced from this ideology mm-hmm. and that that can take in new interested applicants and provide a, a kind of a credentialing system so that clients can know who to look for. I maybe really like, think when you talk about what's next, I think that that needs to be next. Maybe uh, something that's more on, a, on an apprenticeship model, you know, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. very minimal education followed by an abundance of practical application. Mm-hmm. And Leslie, I completely like in the short term, I also think that we really do need to help people distinguish between people who are qualified to do this work and people who are not. Mm-hmm. And uh I, you know, I think one way to maybe, or, or, you know, another way to say that people who do not view the therapy process as an opportunity to push a political agenda, like we need to separate those of us who take the the counseling ethics that say that's a bad idea seriously, uh, from those who have somehow uh, found a way to twist ethics in a way that allow them to use um to essentially gratify their ideological fantasies or needs at the expense of the people that they're working with and i have i know Susanna and i are both members of the foundation against intolerance Mm -hmm. and racism Mm -hmm. and i wonder if uh, you know maybe one of the things Susanna, that you and i can follow up on i don't know if fair would be interested in this but i'm just talking off the top of my head you know, FAIR has a pro-human pledge, which is their version of of ethics that, you, you know, that say that things like you're going to remain mm-hmm. nonviolent. I wonder if FAIR could have 
something like that uh, mm -hmm. for therapists, where therapists have agreed to a number of uh, ethical stances, and then that can be a kind of a credential that that uh, uh, those of us in in private practice or or in a, in a coaching profession could put onto our websites mm -hmm. that would say you know that we adhere to you know a, a pro human. A non-ideological approach to therapy. That That's something I'd be interested individual. in exploring. I would be yeah. interested in that. I think that also there's there's a couple of things. There's the over-medicalization as well. I think there are a few different aspects to how therapy is going right now, how, how it's being trained right now, that I would love to see something parallel to that spring up. There are a lot of people who don't want a diagnosis. They don't want to have, you know, that it's the, it's the whole, that's the whole group of people that the counseling training process right now really leaves out the worried well that they call them, you know, it's just mm -hmm. people with lifespan problems that might want support. These people are not served very well by a, by a medical model of therapy. And also this, it's, I would like to see a model that has maybe like a philosophical counseling designation mm. that that's mm -hmm. not medical and it's not mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. not social engineering it's exploratory and it's not coming from a position of authority it's more like a process exploration partnership mm -hmm. but i don't know maybe i'm just brainstorming well that, and that sounds to me a lot like the uh existential uh therapy model or mm -hmm. theory yeah um and yeah that I, I find that very interesting as well i think that would be uh very productive especially in you know the the current context where um those grand narratives are collapsing for a lot of people mm -hmm. could we say like two things that that anybody could do right now mm -hmm. who's concerned about this could reasonably do like what do you what's like two things that that someone who's concerned about these issues could do without exposing themselves to too much you know danger but that might really you know give them a sense of relief or provide sort of a you know a, a positive uh, direction I'm sorry I've got such an obnoxious mm -hmm. cat who's letting me know that it's his dinner time. I hope that's not coming across too loud. <laughs> no, I didn't realize that was your feline problem still going on. <laughs> I Well, I have three feline problems. One of them's <laughs> named Cookie, one of them's named Wooly, and one of them's named Joe, and they've all managed to be a problem over this time we've been speaking. <laughs> well, what do, you, what do you think, Susanna? Do you have some suggestions you want to offer? Well, I think, you know, as as a uh, chapter leader for FAIR, I think that you could join FAIR. Um, I think that they are uh, taking a very productive and uh, unifying stance in this, you know, standing in that middle space um, and not polarizing these issues. Um, I think that's one thing that people could do. And I think internally, one thing that people could do, you know, just uh, in and of themselves is take some time and think about what their own personal values are. Mm. You know, you have to have, a, I think, a solid grasp 
on what you value in order to be able to push back in these situations, whether they happen at work um, or whether they happen you know, in a different social group or at school. You know, if I hadn't already had an idea of what I thought humility was, I might have accepted the university's idea of humility. But I put a lot of thought and work into that before I got there. And for me, that's what made the difference. Um, you know, I remember seeing a poster, you know, if you, if, you know, if you know what you stand for, you know, you're not going to fall for things. Um, oh. you know, <laughs> I'm sure I'm saying that not quite right, but, um, no, it's a, it's a lovely sentiment. Yeah, that's great. You know? That's really great. Um, I guess I think that we should or could disconnect from the internet more and make sure mm -hmm. that you're, if you are check the quality of your connections with other people and, and try mm -hmm. to have as high quality connection as possible. The, there, I, I see too many people who most of their engagement is passive engagement on the internet. And I think it's really devastating. I think it, it teaches people to look at each other in terms of, of identities and archetypes rather than individuals with a lot of nuance mm -hmm. and complexity. And mm -hmm. the, the more, uh, the higher quality your engagements are, the more you see people as real people. So I think disconnecting some from the internet. Um, and I think if you have children, really paying close attention to what their influences are is very mm -hmm. important. Take their phones away. Kids don't need cell phones. They maybe that you give them a dumb phone, let them make a phone call to you. They're out with mm -hmm. their friends, but don't give them a smartphone. Take their phones away. Sure. If you've already given them a phone, it's not too late to take it back. Tell them you made a mistake. Take it back. They yeah. don't need, especially if they're under 16 years old or so. Yeah. Um, and consider pulling them out of school if they're in one of these public education programs where they're being exposed to this. Consider looking for another educational program if you can or homeschooling. So I know that's kind of, as you said, Susanna, it's a big ask for a lot of people. But if it's possible for you, do it, I would say. Mm -hmm. And I, those are really good. I, I think, uh, I guess I have like just three things I'm trying it's hard to pick two, but I think, I think one thing I would say that it's really, really important that people really understand that it really is this bad, that there are a lot of professionals involved in critical social justice and their job is to make critical social justice palatable. And so I've been looking a lot at a lot of the curriculum proposals in Vermont, and they are incredibly manipulative. Like it's you can read the whole thing and you're not sure exactly what they're saying, but it sounds all vaguely good. But then, you know, there's always one section. If you read down between the lines, at some point it'll say something about accountability. And it's it's like you know, it's the stick with which they're going to enforce this. And so I, I would say that, like, really allow yourself to take seriously the possibility that people who appear to be talking about very just and good things are not talking about just and good things. They are talking about awful things mm -hmm. and they're they're very 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 good at playing on 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 your 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 best intentions and 
uh, in manipulating that in such a way so as to give them power and influence, which is what people who subscribe to this are after. They're after status and power and influence. Mm -hmm. And so allow yourself to take seriously the possibility that someone who says that they're very interested in so-called anti-racism or so-called social justice are not interested in, in, in either one of those things and any kind of reasonable person's definition of what those are about. Um, the other thing I, that I did, which was really hard, I really enjoyed uh, my education. I got all three of my degrees at Kent State University where my father was a professor and I have a very good, um, you know, I, I have very nice memories of Kent State, but I'm ashamed to be associated with Kent State. I wish uh, I wish it didn't say that on my degree. I don't like my office as much because it has my degree that says Kent State University on it. And it makes me so sad because I remember that as being such a wonderful place. And yet, uh, as wonderful as it was, it sold out to the so-called anti-racism, so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion nonsense. And it it just shows me how incredibly weak the institution actually is. And so it's hard, but every fall when Kent State University um, uh, uh, calls me and asks me for money, I say, God, I'm not going to give you money anymore. I'm ashamed that I ever gave you money. Uh, I'm ashamed to have been associated with you. I can't believe what the part that you're playing in, in what you're doing to our society. And uh, I'm I'm giving my money to other causes who have shown themselves to be uh, more uh, thoughtful and forward thinking. And uh, please lose my phone number. Um, another thing that I stopped doing is giving my money to NPR, which is another like I grew up on NPR. I loved NPR. I had a personal relationship with NPR, and I. I loved it. And then I can't listen to NPR for five minutes without feeling like I'm in crazy land. So I stopped giving money to NPR. And I can only hope that something is along the line that will come and, and replace the NPR shaped hole in my life. But mm. the MP NPR I know is, is gone. And, and I had to sort of not be sentimental about stopping my supporting of of these organizations NPR and Kent State University of of who've who've been played such important roles in my lives and the life of my family mm -hmm. and looking at them and saying I really miss who you used to be uh goodbye mm -hmm. so for I me those are some really things that important. were very important to do yeah mm -hmm. you're voting with your wallet yeah yeah so I, I would say people should, you know, unless your university is a very special place that has resisted all this, I would look up and see if your university has DEI language and anti-racism language. And if it is vague um, and if somewhere in there it talks about accountability, I would be very clear about no longer giving money to your university and making it clear to them why you're no longer giving money to your uh, to your university and and maybe sharing how disappointed you are uh at the weakness that your university has shown in, in allowing itself to be captured by these things well you know, is the is it uh other side of that same coin you know employers out there who can relax their 
degree requirements for certain careers, um, doing that will make a big difference because it will take away a lot of the power that's concentrated in those universities, you know, maybe even more so than individual donations at this point. That is a really good point. I think that's a fantastic point. And these institutions aren't what they used to be in a degree in this in these circumstances to put yeah. somebody through this process just in order to get an entry level job seems seems kind of ridiculous. I wanted to make mm-hmm. one point to the there's two people in the chat that mentioned that they have trouble finding like-minded people where they live in person. Hmm. And I think that that's, I can recognize the difficulty of that. And the one piece of advice that I would, I would offer, and I wonder what the two of you think about this, but it's, even if you don't perceive people as being like-minded, try to find common ground and try to find ways to connect because it, you know, just, just because this ideology and the way that we're dealing with people right now in the world, there's this real tendency to polarize and see things in black and white. But if you start to connect with people, even if you don't think they see things the way you do, even if they're very politically different, find a thing that you do connect on and focus on that and, and try to find there are usually things that you can enjoy together and agree on together. So I would suggest not focusing so much on having to talk about these things. But even if you can't find non-woke people, find people to talk to about non-woke things. That's really, and and by extension, and I think I heard you say this, you put out something the other day, Leslie, which is the single most valuable thing for me that I did, uh, was I found people like you, Leslie, and you, Susanna, people who I could talk to about these things, Mm -hmm. because when you're just surrounded by crazy, you need a reality check from other human beings. And I think that's true. Uh, you know, Leslie's a part of the organization Solid Ground, and those people, Jen Friend, Jody, mm-hmm. uh, David, I I don't know personally, and and I don't know everyone personally there, but I, I do have a lot of friends who I've met uh, through organizations like Critical Therapy, Antidote, and, and FAIR, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, if you're just looking for something right now, I personally, you know, I was pretty well versed on all of this. And I still needed to connect with people mm-hmm. uh, to, for the reality check. And so I joined Solid Ground and I don't, I can't go very often mm-hmm. uh, just because my schedule is, is the way it is. But when I go, I, it is just like such a breath of fresh air. So I don't mean to plug for Solid Ground, but I, but that is for me personally, that has been just so incredibly healthy to connect with smart, benevolent people who understand uh, the reality of what's going on. Yeah, I, I, that is why we created it. It's, it's that, that exact thing that you're talking about. I found so much, it was so helpful to me to find CTA. It was such a, uh, it was, it was, I was in a really crazy place. I was really disoriented and emotionally overwhelmed with, with what was going on in my graduate program and finding people who understood and saw the concerns felt the same way I did about the things that I was concerned about was, a massive sanity check for me. It was something I really needed. And so we created the solid ground support network for that reason, to help people connect with other people and have those kind of conversations. And again, I'm like you, I'm not trying to really plug it. We're Mm -hmm. not making money off of it. It's Mm -hmm. $5 a month for people to join. So it's not like we're, so I'm not like, it's not a big thing. I don't, you know, it's, that's not 
there's no grift involved in it. It's really right. just to right. connect people yeah. to other people. And we hold um, synchronous meetings a few times a week and there's a message board for people to connect there as well. So if you are interested in that and having trouble finding people to talk to and need a sanity check, you can find a solid ground support. I think it's .com, but it might be .org, but look at both. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would have just completely benevolent yeah. and grounded interactions. It's what you'll find there. Yeah. 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 I, I would agree with that. And I would say that I have found uh, that in fair as well. Um, but I would also say, don't be afraid to just talk about what your thoughts and your feelings are to other people. You know, when I came out of my program, you know, I was traumatized to the extent that I could not not talk about it. And I basically told everybody that yeah. I ran into what had happened to me. And I was surprised at how receptive mm. folks were and surprised um, and supportive. I mean, I, outside of that program, I mean, of course I am in Tennessee, so that might have something to do with it. Um, but you know, even when I went up to areas where, where I was afraid, like I am, um, I'm a big, I'm a big anime nerd. Um, and so I go to conventions, there's a couple that I participate in. And, you know, I thought for sure, if I'm going to run into trouble, that's where it's going to be. Um, but I talked to a number of my friends there and was really open about my experience. And even there, people were supportive and did not realize, uh, you know, the depths to which this ideology um, has gone. You know, even when they were passing out, uh, you know, uh, badge things that said, you know, what your pronouns were on there. You know, they just they didn't they didn't understand. But once I informed them, they were really pretty horrified. So yeah. you know, don't be afraid to you know step right. in there because even. Even if you run across somebody who um, really does believe that I ideology, once you uh, once you know, then you know. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know. and it's it's a good point. And speaking in hushed tones about this behind closed doors for fear of being getting in trouble is a way to give it more power. So mm -hmm. being able mm -hmm. to speak openly and fearlessly and and not be not be worried about what somebody else is going to think about your opinion is a great way to just just give other people the courage to talk about it plainly as well. Hmm. I think that's really good advice, Susanna. Well, thank you both so much for joining me for this really engaging conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I'm really sorry for what has happened to you, Susanna, yes, but it sounds did. like they messed with the right person in a way because you're taking <laughs> it as far as you can. So they did. Tiffany, mm -hmm. Tiffany and Susanna are the wrong kind of people to, mm -hmm. to mess with. I think <laughs> what these people are going to find out is, and, and, uh, uh, your, you know, the message that, which I sure Susanna has found and, and I hope Tiffany has found it and to everyone else out there who's frustrated is you really are not alone. And even though I'm, I know that it feels that way sometimes, but you're not. And thanks Leslie for, um, allowing us to to talk on your channel i really enjoyed meeting you suzanne and leslie it's always a pleasure thank oh, you yeah likewise it was a pleasure and and thank you i very much appreciate um you opening up your your space for me well, I'm, I'm delighted to meet you and to be able to have this conversation i think it's so important thank you both so mm -hmm. much
right. 